Welcome back to the Patriot Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Lonnie Buckner. Thanks so much for listening. It means a, means a lot to us. Uh, before we get started, though, let's take a moment, uh, if you would, leave us a five-star review. It means so much to the show when you do that. Uh, our guest on this episode is Garrett Tesla from the Squad Room Podcast. Uh, Garrett's been a sheriff deputy in Southern California for over 15 years. He started the Squad Room Podcast in order to help uh, fellow law enforcement officers deal with some of the issues that they face uh, in the line of duty, such as you know poor diet, uh, lack of exercise time, uh, some of the mental health issues that come from the stresses and things that they see and deal with every day, uh, and also some of the leadership issues that uh, they try to overcome. He's also been a TEDx speaker. You can you can find that if you go to the TED Talks uh, website. Uh, he covered the importance of community support and how that helps uh, first responders. And, and some of the issues he talks about is where, you know, they initially they, they didn't always want community help, but then, you know, kind of coming to realize through a tragic event that the police officers and other first responders can't do their jobs by themselves. They also need community community support. He calls them uh, second responders. And I, if you get a chance to check that out, I think you'd enjoy it. But uh, we hope you enjoy the show. All right, Garrett, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate your time, buddy. How's things out there in California? Well, you know, I've uh, I, I've um, spent the day being a vice principal, basically, for my two kids who are in the middle of homeschooling, like many other people. So, you know, wearing a lot of hats like everybody else uh, are these days. Good. Hey, we talked about this briefly before we got started, but you were asking how I, I came ac- across your podcast, uh, Squad Room Podcast. And I was mentioning how once I got started, I was looking at, I wanted to find other people that were doing this and and get a chance to talk to some folks that had more experience in it and and even some different perspectives. And so I came across yours and I really liked what you're doing. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your career and then kind of what led you to starting the podcast in the squad room? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I appreciate that. Um, I'm a now 16 year veteran of a sheriff's office in Southern California and law enforcement is a second career for me. Uh, I came to it in my late 20s after some time in the film and music industry, uh, enjoying myself in my uh, late teens and 20s in that industry, but uh, started for searching for something more, something with some meaning. It sounds corny, but uh, a life of service was something I was drawn towards. Uh, I know you understand that with your background. Uh, And so, you know, living in L.A. at the time. I would watch uh, the LAPD cars. I remember I, I lived right on the border of LA County and LA City. So that meant I, I saw LAPD and LA County sheriffs quite often. And living in Hollywood, you just, you're surrounded by police activity a lot, just by the nature of the fact that you're there. And I would watch, I remember one night, you know, I was out at a concert out there on the Sunset Strip, uh, hanging out and doing like the cool guy thing. And I remember, uh, we were taking a break between bands and I saw two LAPD cruisers roll code three, which is lights and sirens roll past me. Like, you know, seemed like 150 miles an hour down the sunset strip off into the distance to some danger that I had no idea what they were going to go do. And I thought, man, I, I, I wish I could be that kind of person. And uh, eventually I got to the point where I was like, well, I, I have to try. I have to at least have to try and see if I have that in me. And if I have that willingness to serve in that capacity in me and, I, uh, I got picked up and went through the academy, fully expected to quit on day one, <laughs> um, and then thought, well, I'll give it a year, uh, and here I am 16 years later. Uh, currently, I'm a sergeant uh, for my department, uh, and it has been uh, an amazing uh, career to this point. To get to your point about why I started the squad room, um, there are a host of issues that come with being a first responder that oftentimes uh, you don't think about when you're young or that you don't think about when you're getting hired. Uh, you know, the, the rotating shifts, the night shifts, the sleep deprivation are one thing, but then the stress, both the acute and the chronic stress, the, of course, the threats to your life, um, all of those things can pile up. And if you don't handle them correctly early on, you end up in a situation like I was in 2012, 2013, where you're overweight and you're struggling and you're not sleeping well and you're getting diagnosed with sleep disorders. And uh, around the time I got promoted to sergeant and I was doing some of my own, some of my own research and I would have these really weird briefings, you know, police, every it's just like the movies. Before you start your shift, there's a briefing and the, the whole squad or whole team or whole platoon, whatever you call it, gets together and talks about stuff. And that's some of the times where we do our own training. 
And I would train on things like the importance of vitamin D uh, supplementation for sleep and mood and uh, mindfulness and how to meditate and all those things that seemed really out there. And oftentimes I got uh, a bunch of um, eyeballs rolling upwards uh, by the salty guys. But more and more often, someone would come up to me and, and thank me for doing that and thank me for expressing a concern or a feeling that they were having. Like, How do you eat well at two in the morning when your only options are 7-Eleven or a, a 24-hour McDonald's, you know? So as I kept going and as people kept being really receptive to just these briefings, uh, I started listening to podcasts and I had a long commute to a, a station at the time and thought, you know, I have a background in radio from that time, part of that time in the music industry and really became intrigued by the idea of sharing what I was learning and uh, and being able to get experts onto a podcast to pick their brain and ask questions that I wouldn't have access to otherwise, you know? So um, I, there's some of these people I've had on the show, if I just called them up and asked, Hey, can I, can I ask you questions for an hour? They'd say, sure, for a 500 bucks. Right. But if I got a podcast behind it, then they're more than happy to do it. And so it really started as this like desire for me to learn more about what happens to your body under high stress and those sorts of things. And then as the, as the show has gone on, it really translated or I started integrating more of what I'm passionate about, which is leadership, uh, both personal leadership and leadership of small teams and leadership and organizations. That's something that I really am really fascinated by and am motivated by. And so I started bringing, incorporating that into the show as well. And it's, it's been very successful. It's been a lot of fun. Good. That's, it's very interesting. And I could, I could understand, uh, I've never been a police officer, but I think the military and the police are, 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 you get kind of the same people a lot of times. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I can imagine with, you know, some of the classes and in, in education things you were trying to do probably didn't, uh, uh, you know, go well initially, but like you said, I'm sure it's interesting. A lot of guys off to the side are kind of like, Hey, I have some of these same issues too. Can you help me? But they're kind of embarrassed or ashamed or, or whatever to, to say some of these things in front. Cause it's a, it's a tough guy outfit. You know, you're not supposed to be weak. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember there's been several times like meditation specifically where um, I will give it and I'm thinking, Oh, this is bombing. Nobody's paying attention They're They just think I'm ridiculous. And uh, a week later, someone will come up and like grab my elbow and say, Hey, you know, I've, I've been doing it. I've been trying it. And it's, it's, it's been great. So thank you. So that really, that really keeps you going. Yeah. We, we had the same kind of stuff, you know, coming back from all these deployments between Iraq and Afghanistan in the last, you know, 20 years or whatever. Um, it's kind of the same thing. And, and I think the, the Marine Corps has been doing a pretty good job. And I think the military at large has been doing a good job of trying to get ahead of, uh, you know, some of the mental health issues and just some of the trauma and other things that people have dealt with. But early on, you know, September 11th and, and thereafter, initially, it was it was tough because a lot of people didn't want to act like it was a big deal or there were problems. But uh, but there are, you know, and yeah. And it's but in those environments, it can be very tough to to kind of put your hand in the air and say, yeah, I've, I've got some of these issues. I think that, you know, law enforcement looks to the military for a lot of different things, you know, not only just tactics on response to things, but it's really been some of the uh, top military leaders. And then for lack of a better term, like the social media influencers that are military that are out there who have talked openly about these things and that, that have helped break down the stigma and the barriers. You know, I, when, when I get a, Navy SEAL on my program to talk about why they went to therapy and how they do meditation and their mindfulness routine. That's much more effective than getting some, you know, flowery hippie from Boulder <laughs> to come in and talk uh, after having, you know, lived in a Buddhist temple. There's no, uh, no slight to that experience, but it's, it, it's much more relatable to an, an officer when you hear it from someone in the military who's, who's gone through similar or worse things to say, yeah, I've done it. Yeah, I've gotten help or I needed help or, um, yeah, I, my my nutrition got out of whack or my discipline got out of whack, you know. No, I can I can certainly imagine that since since you've been doing this, have you seen a change at all from from kind of an organizational level to do things to help individual officers? It's really scattered uh, the response and the, and the changes around the country. And it really, again, comes down to leadership at the agency level, you know, um, President Obama in his uh, pillars of 21st century policing made officer wellness one of the seven pillars and really is the first 
time that it became a priority for law enforcement in comparison to some of the other priorities that are out there. It's the first time that like the individual officer got prioritized as something that needs to be considered. And so you have some chiefs and some sheriffs who have picked up that torch and led uh, wonderful changes at their agencies to really make a positive impact. And you have other people who still have their head in the sand that, you know, subscribe to that old school macho idea that um, if you get help, for example, then you can't carry a gun or you're not fit to serve because, you know, you're a quote unquote whack job. And there's a lot of guys that still deal with that stigma in their departments. And that is not get set to one part of the country, you know, out here in California, where you would expect the most um, uh, receptive kind of audience, that's not necessarily true. And it's all based on what the guy at the top or the woman at the top is telling the people below them on what to think. No, it's, I, I think you're absolutely right. And when it comes to leadership, I think that's, that's a shift that I saw in a period of time in the Marine Corps, even because early on in my career, that was kind of the thing too. I mean, you, you just had to be hard and you had to be tough. You don't go to medical, you don't, you don't get hurt, you know, you don't have injuries. And if you did, even if they were, you know, real injuries, like you were still weak, you know, that's just, that was the mentality and you never wanted to be hurt. So you would just suck it up and deal with it. And, you know, to your own detriment later on. And, and I saw kind of a shift in that later on. And I, and I talk about this in one of the early podcasts that I did. Um, one of the first Marine leaders that I ever saw that, that kind of demonstrated that, that, that made me feel like, wow, it's, there's, there's actually somebody above me or, or in a senior position here that, that, uh, um, that is saying it, it's, it's okay. And it, ironically enough, he was an LAPD SWAT officer. Um, there was a Marine, uh, he, he was a Marine Sergeant Major reservist. He ended up getting killed in Afghanistan, unfortunately in 2009, I believe, but, uh, his name was James Cottrell, but uh, um, was one of the one of the uh, best Marine leaders I ever saw. But he he was that kind of a leader that um, that that was really there to serve you and look out for your welfare that we that I really didn't see so much before that. Yeah, I'm aware of who you're talking about, and I have I have mutual friends uh, with that officer, and I've never heard anyone describe him as anything less than the most stellar leader that you could ever hope for. And, you know, and so it really becomes this challenge uh, for us who are in leadership positions in kind of the middle to take the reins. And, you know, I'm active duty still. I, I still go to work every day. I still my my job is is in law enforcement. And, um, you know, I've I've taken it upon myself to to talk about these things openly in the podcast format. And it's 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 kind of funny because it's easier for me to do it in a format that is heard worldwide by, by thousands of people um, than it is to like, if I were to stand up and do the same thing at my department for the, you know, the, the couple hundred people uh, because I know those people directly and I have to make eye contact with them directly. And it's, it's silly because I know that members of my department listen to the show. Sure. Right. So, and every once in a while, someone I don't even realize knows about it might like off the cuff, say something or a throwback to some episode or some comment I made at some point. Um, but it's almost easier to talk about it with the quote unquote anonymity of, the, of a podcast, even though my name's all over it, my face is all over it. And, and, uh, and that's, it's very much part of my identity. It's very, it's very bizarre, but anyone who's in sort of a position where they're in charge or they're in a leadership position over somebody else has an obligation to, to step up and kind of help reduce that stigma when it comes to this, these issues. And I'm of, I'm of the belief that um, leadership does not have a rank, right? Um, you can be a leader as a line level officer or as a, as a private or a specialist um, in the military or as the assistant at your firm uh, in the private sector. Like you have the ability to lead others uh, and you should, and you need to accept that responsibility and take action on it. It's a good point. Uh, and I heard this in one of your shows. I can't remember exactly which episode, but um, it might have been with JP from Echelon, uh, where you asked him a question kind of about this saying, hey, you may not necessarily be the leader or, or whatever in the organization, but how does somebody in, uh, you know, maybe a, a line position role or whatever, 
be a leader. And so in your experience in, in um, and, and I know you, you're in a position like that now, but say like a young officer uh, in, in and, and I'm sure this varies, but in, in, in your experience, like a young officer, do they have the ability nowadays, you think, to speak up and say something when they see things are wrong? Or is it still kind of the old days where, you know, you, don't, you haven't earned the right to speak up yet? Well, I, I think it's income. I think it's changing, uh, especially when you talk about seeing things that are wrong with how we interact with the public. So directly to, to like use of force issues, there is now an expectation that regardless of rank, if you see something, you're supposed to say something, you're supposed to interject. Uh, we saw the lack of that in Minneapolis. Uh, and a lot of policies have been changed now to to encourage it. And, <laughs> you know, when when that happened and then the news was being made about po- agencies making policy that you have to intervene, I was kind of left scratching my head thinking like, haven't we not had that for the last 30 years? <laughs> you know, so uh, but yes, I think I, th- I think that it's, you know, as a younger guy, you have to be careful about how you address problems. but it doesn't, it, you know, leadership isn't just raising the red flags or fighting every fight, you know, it leadership for a guy at the begin at the beginning of his career or, or a woman who's just entering the workforce after a school or whatever really just comes down to, um, building relationships with the people around you so that you can be of service in whatever capacity you're able to serve that person in. And so, there's a lot of, there's a lot of simple things people can do and simple things that I didn't do uh, when I was young that, that help them become a leader when they're not the leader. Yeah. That's, it's a good point. It's always a challenge in, in those positions too. Uh, when I first found your uh, podcast, I obviously listened to a, a bunch of the episodes, but I, I, it wasn't until later that I found that, that you um, had a Ted talk and I thought that was very interesting. And and I had a chance to watch it. And I thought it was very good. Um, no, absolutely. I, and I'm, I'm sure that's had a big impact. And I want to ask you that. So since then, um, how has that impacted what you're trying to do here with, with uh, the squad room? You know, I don't know how it's impacted the squad room itself directly. Um, I mean, the, the TED Talk was a direct result of it. You know, um, <clears throat> the producers of TEDx, uh, knew about my show or had heard about my show and what I was trying to accomplish with it. And then, uh, knew that I was part of this response to the Montecito debris flow, which, uh, in 2018, people might remember after some, after a big forest fire or wildfire, and then, uh, extensive rains, basically the entire mountain came down on the town of Montecito and killed 24 people and, uh, basically left, uh, an entire, neighborhood not even neighborhood an entire si- small city in in mud and so it, the talk was my was a, and and the producers happened to live in that area and were very familiar with it knew that i'd responded to it and so they asked me to participate and i'm a fan of ted talks already and in general it was always kind of a bucket list idea like man it'd be cool to do that someday um and so when i got asked i think i said yes before they finished the sentence <laughs> for with the offering the invite um and so it's definitely raised my profile um, internally within my own department. Um, it's mentioned every so often by someone um, in in a command position or someone who has seen it. Um, it's something that is sort of a a calling card, I guess, at this point for kind of what my ethos is about. I mean, that that talk specifically is about the importance of first responders accepting help and uh, accepting the cooperation of the public and then what the public can do in return. And, and so I call them second responders. Um, but it's, it was, it was certainly great practice for just public speaking, of course, because, you know, those, those Ted talks are memorized verbatim. There's no, there's no winging it. There's no PowerPoint. There's no, there's no script being scr- thrown at the back of the, at the back of the auditorium, like you, you're up and you go, and you just hope you don't bl- draw a blank. Um, so it's it's helped with a lot of that in that way. So that it was a very it was very fun. It was uh, worth every minute of the practice. But man, was it that was tough. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm sure that was a uh, uh, nerve wracking a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, again when I talk about music and film. Like for a while, I was on the other side. I was on the performing side. I grew up on stage and. 
uh, performing for TV audiences and such. And <laughs> almost none of that was as, as nerve wracking as having to talk by yourself verbatim for, you know, 12 minutes. <laughs> well, I think you've, you did a great job and I'm sure you've gotten uh, plenty of good feedback from it. not only the content, but I think the delivery was great too. So thank you. Um, I'm sure that's an experience you'll always, uh, always remember. Mm-hmm. It, it, you mentioned a little bit about, um, uh, some of the, the, the tragedy in, in Minnesota, and you mentioned interacting with the public and things like that. And there's been so much of that stuff in the media right now. What, um, and, and I, and it's, it's tough to always believe what you get, you know, in the media, things aren't always necessarily as bad as what maybe they're, they're portrayed to be, but in your day-to-day interaction with citizens and things like that, do you get that level of belligerence and disrespect and things like that? Or is it still pretty good? Well, um, you know, one of the unique issues of, or dynamics of working for a sheriff's office is typically in California, especially they were very large, both in size of officers, but also in land and in the types of communities we patrol. So we have stations that are suburban. We have stations that are, uh, basically a, a college campus and surrounding college kids, and we have rural farmland and vineyards. So a wide variety of, of populations that we serve. And it's a very different response we get in each of those. So like out by the college campuses, yeah, you can expect that a lot more than you would in the rural farmer areas, for example, right? Um, I work an area where we have a lot of um, trust built up between us and the community because of things like how we responded to this debris flow. I mentioned um, numerous other events that have happened. And I think I have a firm belief that the community trusts us more than your average police department gets trusted by their community. Uh, I have friends in other agencies in other larger agencies or in, in larger areas. And yep, it's as bad as it seems. It's, 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 it's every bit as gnarly and, and, uh, dangerous and disrespectful as you see in all the social media posts that are out there of people assaulting cops, um, you know, the, the phones and the challenging them up and up in their face and all that sort of stuff. Um, my, some of my partners got sent to LA during, and San Francisco during the riots. And they came back with horror stories of the things that were said to them by, especially our minority officers, uh, things that were said to them by members of the public who were, you know, protesting. No, it's, it's, uh, in my opinion, honestly, it's it's pretty sad. You know, there there was a time, you know, throughout my time in the in the military, every four years, you know, you kind of reevaluate: do I want to stay in? Do I want to get out? And there was times where I thought about actually was applying through federal law enforcement channels for a while, and I decided to to reenlist. But um, I, I I look at it now, and and it's like, man, I almost feel like it's a job like you can't win. Like you're almost and and it I and maybe I'm wrong, but it just appears like that way. It's it's uh, almost so delicate now that your behavior would have to be so delicate now because again, people are recording everything. They're, they're almost setting you up for failure. Um, I saw a video recently uh, and this was actually a good one, but the police department from my, or the sheriff's department from my hometown responded to a call where a lady was uh, in a restaurant and she was unhappy with the wait staff and whatever. So she got really uh, loud and obnoxious. And so they called the sheriff's department. And this was all being recorded by somebody there in the restaurant. So they show up and this officer handled it, in my opinion. I mean, he was way nicer than I ever would have been. I think he handled it perfectly. And, and I mean, he gave this lady about 20 minutes of grace where he was like, ma'am, and trying to be as nice as possible until finally he had no choice but to arrest this lady. And then after this, so at the time you don't see this, this video, but, um, before that video was released, this lady was on, you know, social media talking about how bad she was uh, treated by the sheriff's department and, and everything during this um, incident. And so you have all the people piling on talking about how bad, you know, the police department is or sheriff's department is. Well, so in response to this, the sheriff's department releases the video in their defense to say, no, th- this officer, uh, this sheriff, sheriff's deputy handled this you know, as good as you could ever expect to. And he did. And, and the cool thing was after that, everybody was like, Oh 
yeah, this lady was was obviously out of line. This guy did the right thing, and 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 uh, and I was glad to see that. But you don't always see that. A lot of times, unfortunately, you do see sometimes where officers are out of line. And so that's got to be a, such a huge challenge for you guys today. Yeah, it's you know, there's what eight hundred fifty thousand cops out there in tens of thousands of municipalities and county agencies and federal agencies and state agencies, and we all have different training. We all have different requirements. And your how people look at you know when I get suited up next time and go out, um, some cop with a short temper in Central Florida is going to affect how people think about me out here in Central California. And so it's yeah, it's incredibly frustrating, uh, and that's why when you see cops do bad things, that that will not make anyone more angry than a good cop. Oh, no uh, doubt. We, we we get far more frustrated, regardless of how angry the public is. A good cop gets far more angry at that cop because it just makes our job that much harder. It makes us that less safe when we go out. Uh, so, you know, it, it is frustrating in that sense. So what I mean, but what do we do about it? Are we just like angst up and have a heart attack in our 40s? Because that's that's typically what's happened. But we need to control what we can control, which is our own attitude, our own way and how we deal with people. Understand that that officer doesn't represent us as a person or our department or as the profession as a whole, even. And, you know, for those of us who have the ability to improve the knowledge, skills and abilities of our coworkers, do that so that they don't become the person that, you know, spits back at somebody or mouths off to somebody on camera and then looks and then ends up on the national news. Uh, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to teach each other the discipline and the proper tactics to avoid that stuff. No, absolutely. And I, I know you, you talk to a lot of officers all over the country and, and, and even other countries. And, um, and so you've got a good pulse on what other agencies are doing with regards to training and other things with, with some of these new things that are going on. Does it seem as if these agencies um, uh, and, and the government as a whole is, is is doing enough as far as training and, and other things to help um, officers be equipped and trained to handle some of these situations? Mm, that's, that's a good question, and it's a really hard one to answer because there is no national standard, right? And so there's a couple dynamics at play here and they're all kind of unintended consequences, I think in some way, shape or form. The first thing is budgets, you know, uh, there, there aren't that many, especially now with COVID and everything else, there aren't that many, uh, uh, agencies that are flush with cash or cities that have a lot of extra money that they want to spend on their police right now. You know, during the defund movement, this is not the time that agencies are, or that, uh, cities or counties are actually putting more money into their police. So training always comes down to money. It rarely comes down to anything else and money, not just to pay for the training or pay for the equipment, but pay for the officer's time to be there and then pay for the backfill of, um, of having to find somebody to fill in for that officer while they're at training. You know, and if you got a department of five people, finding that backfill might be hard. If you got a department of 500 people, that backfill might not be hard, but it's really expensive because you have a lot of backfill. So regardless of size, the training budgets are a huge issue. Do we train enough? No, short answer. Uh, we, I, It's amazing how often I have a conversation with someone who doesn't have a lot of familiarity with law enforcement, and they think that we get the same training as SEAL Team 6, you know? And we just don't because of, because of time and constraints and budget and hiring. Like we would have to have, at my agency, if we were to have just say we double our training, you know, double your firearms, double your de-escalation training, your critical incident training, your crisis management, all that stuff. You just double it, which is probably what you would need to do to be at a point where like every officer has very, very proficient. Um, we would probably have to double the size of our department close to it just to fill in for the time it takes to, to train you. So uh, that is the constant challenge. So departments aren't going to do it. So it really becomes incumbent upon the officer to do it on their own time. And they, it's, it's not, it's, it's extremely common for an officer to pay their own way to schools, 
you know, to pay for their own hotel and gas to drive out of state to go get training that they want and that they need and just, you know, or pay for the extra ammunition to make sure that that they can shoot an actual target instead of, you know, not grandma three blocks away. Um, it's a it's it's a really dynamic issue that doesn't have an easy answer to it. Yeah, and that's in in my opinion to what you just said. I think that's it's bad business on the on the behalf of the departments and things like that to ever expect officers to have to go out and fund their own training. But I I, I get the budgets and I I know that there's a lot of constraints. Um, but that's that's unfortunate. And, and recently, looking at all these things that are going on, a lot and a lot of it's bad press. Obviously, I. I don't know. Uh, and again, that's why I want to talk to folks like you. You you know the answers to this stuff. I don't. But from the outside looking in, I, I, I figured that, you know, there probably isn't a lot of extra training happening to help with some of these things. Because I've got a lot of friends that are cops. A lot of Marines and military guys become police officers in all different places. And I've done ride-alongs. And so I've got a, a little bit of knowledge about the, the basics of how stuff works. And... Um, even from the beginning, do you feel like the the just the initial training? And I know all departments are different, and, and depending on what level of or you know law enforcement, there's different uh, um, you know training thresholds and things like that. But just as a from a generic standpoint, do you think that even just the initial training is is comprehensive enough or or um, or adequate enough? That I think now that starts to fall, I think, more geographically into a yes or no question based on where you're talking about in the in the in the country. So, you know, out here in California, it's a six month program. Um, I think when I went through it, it was 26 weeks. I think now it's been reduced to a minimum of 21. Um, still a significant amount of time. But but there are other states that have a nine month program. But I mean, you can draw anything out for nine months. It's more, more a matter of like, what are you teaching in that nine months and how good is the instruction, right? There are other states that to this day, like you can strap on a gun belt and drive around in a cop car having not gone through an academy on day one yet. And you only have to get to the academy within like the first year of being sworn in. And that just blows my mind that like you you could actually go to this job and like read an employee manual that's like, print it as a PDF and then go out and try and enforce the law without having some sort of like standardized training. And those are becoming fewer and fewer, but uh, they still exist in some way, shape or form, you know, where you, you, you like, or you go to the Academy part of the time, but then you're on duty part of the time. It's just bizarre. So, you know, the challenge of a job, this job is that <laughs> every and then and the great thing that makes it so like addicting to want to come to work every day is like it is choose your own adventure every day you come to work you have no idea what's going to happen right so monday is going to be different than tuesday and i guarantee wednesday is going to be much different than tuesday or monday right so it's like every day is different so the variety of things you encounter are going to be equally different so if you wanted to make an academy that would encompass everything you could possibly cover that's going to be like three years of training and then the misnomer about about academy training is that it's the be all end all. It's really just the foundation. It's it's called the basic academy because it's basic, just like basic training, right? Like you don't finish basic training in the Marine Corps and then go jump out of airplanes on day one out, out of there and you know and do advanced infantry warfare stuff. Like there's there's levels you have to go through, and so it's the same for us. Like you graduate from the academy, okay, cool, good job. Now you're in FTO field training which is when that is really where you see if someone's going to succeed or fail as an officer, because now they're out in the real world, they have to apply what they've learned and they're being judged on a daily basis, if not by the minute about how they're performing. Those programs are also good and bad, depending on the quality of the people who are FTOs and the quality of the department's dedication to making sure that they reduce liability by being tough on these people, or do they just need, butts and seats and anybody gets to pass. Yeah. I, I was listening to one of your episodes. You were talking to a gentleman and I apologize. I can't remember his name, but he was um, uh, a retired officer from one of the Canadian police departments and he has a training. Mm, Brian Willis. Uh, that, yeah. And he has a uh, training outfit that he, the, he has now where he trains officers and other things too. But he, he talked about this too, about, you know, the different levels of training that, that uh, departments are providing or not providing. And sometimes, you know, guys being interested, you know, as long as they're getting paid and, and all that. And I, 
do you think a lot of this is that is that really the answer as far as um not getting is it is it really just a money thing and and if so um is that something where you know there there almost has to be like federal government legislation to come in and 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 instead of giving money to other things that maybe aren't as important but because this is a obviously a big issue in america with uh with things and so i i just don't know I'm, I'm i'd like to hear your your perspective on that as far as you know how do we get better well you're never i mean the pay is never going to be commiserate to what the threat is right but and and then some people might say oh we don't get paid for what we do we get paid for what we might have to do you know okay so there's that too but you know the job is um well i actually job's the wrong word you know, it, it it is a calling. And like I said, at the beginning of our talk, like as cheesy as it sounds, I was called to service and everybody I work with was called in some way, shape or form as well. And what it means to them is different than what it means to me. But it's, it's, I've talked about this too on the podcast. It's not the financial paycheck that we get. It's the psychological paycheck, you know, the, the psychological paycheck of knowing that you've come to work and you've done something good in the community. You've helped somebody you've made the world a better place at least for those 24 hours or that, or that 12 hour shift or whatever it is. And it's really important that our leaders and agencies uh, help people see that vision and see the impact they make on a daily basis to remind them of their service, because that's why we come to work. I don't come to work for the hourly pay. Uh, I could go out and get a much better paying job somewhere else. There's cops on the East coast and the South that make minimum wage, you know, literally minimum wage and they're working three jobs to pay the bills um you know like flipping burgers at a restaurant and they're a cop during the full-time duty but they can't make ends meet but they come to work anyway that's insane yeah yeah and and i i apologize i might have been unclear um i i I meant more like the the funding for the training oh but I, i certainly understand yeah i um i most of these guys, you know, they're not, they're not doing the job for the money. You know, I, I certainly didn't stay in the Marine Corps for 20 years because it paid well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fringe benefits of wearing camis really wear out after a little bit. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the money, um, I mean, it's, it's a matter of priorities, right. And the priority right now is, is to not give that money. And, I think a lot of people see that like they want to defund the police, but they also want to increase the expectation on what we are capable of and what we do. And like you, you can't have both and have it turn out well. You know, you can have one or the other. And I'm not necessarily against defunding agencies if it's be, if it means taking responsibilities off of our plate that never should have been there in the first place. But to to fund agencies in the way that they need to be funded, that's a yeah, that's an undertaking for a massive federal government program. Sure. No, that's, and yeah, that's certainly tough. And I know some of that's kind of, um, you know, some big questions, but it's just um, this whole idea of defunding the police is, is silly. We, we've got to have protection and, and safety and things like that. And, and so I, 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 I can't even believe that that's even a conversation that people have had, but what do you, th- so again, you talk to a lot of officers and you know all over the country. What are some of the biggest challenges that that are that officers are facing today? Is it is it these things we're talking about with the public? Or yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You know, they're it's they're definitely feeling it, um, and you know agencies are feeling it. Agencies are getting pressure to back off, and that trickles down. You know, to the point where I've talked to guys in some major agencies who go into briefings in the morning and they're. Sergeants are telling them, don't do anything that'll get me on the news. Uh, you know, go have a nice long cup of coffee somewhere and keep sit on your hands. And that's counter to what we want to accomplish in a life of service. And it's counter to what our job description is. And it's counter to the ethos that we all swore an oath to. But but a lot of agencies are really nervous or downright scared about having to confront some of these issues. Uh you know, if, if it were to pop off in their agency, then you have individual officers who are disgruntled and, you know, um, demotivated by all the stuff that's going on and don't feel the, don't feel the love, so to speak. And just want to, uh, you know, sit and, and stew in us in their self pity about the, the, the situation. But I still see a lot of officers though, on the other side, 
who want to go out, want to do good work, want to catch the bad guys, want to help the good guys, uh, want to want to affect the world. And they don't let this uh, bother them because, again, control what you can control. I can't control what the public thinks of me. I can only control uh, what I do for the next 12 hours of my life and how I interact with people and how I choose to represent myself. And those are the people I see who are continually successful. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I, I can remember this the same feeling you described earlier when when you know there's there's an officer that's involved in something that makes the headlines in a bad way that you know it's it's other police officers that are probably most angry because it it, it affects your reputation as well. Um, I can remember a situation in the Marine Corps where there was a there was a Marine in Afghanistan and I can't I think it was might have been two thousand eight or so that uh, threw the puppy over the bridge. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, it made pretty, pretty bad news for a while. And just, there's little things like that. And, you know, some kid that's probably 20 years old, isn't even thinking or whatever, and does something like that. And it makes the news and it makes all of us look bad. And, and, and then even down the road, you don't know, I mean, is that going to affect the budget that the Marine Corps has given the, the, in the following years or, or um, uh, you know, whatever else, but, but stuff like that is, uh, obviously has a negative impact on everybody that's involved in that. Yeah. If that happened, I would fully expect I have to go through like animal sensitivity training as a result of that, <laughs> right? Cause, cause like something happens and then they have to scramble to like show the public that look, it's not us. We're doing, we're doing what we can or, you know, we don't kick puppies and you know, well, there, that's a, <laughs> I, was, I can remember a time I was, I was brand new to the Marine Corps. My very first duty station in uh, 1995 and I was, I was in Okinawa, Japan. I was 18 years old. And uh, there was a couple of Marines and a sailor that were in Okinawa also that raped a 12-year-old Okinawa girl. Oh, goodness. And you could just, I know, and you could just imagine um, how that went. And, I mean, it was obviously terrible for everybody involved. But, like, the Marine Corps had this huge black eye that uh, people still talk about, you know, uh, 25 years later or whatever. And uh, But... Um, you start, you know, you call back home and talk to your mom or talk to your family and friends and they're asking about that. And you're like, <laughs> like, you know, you just don't want to be associated with any of that. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that, you know, how much damage one person can do to such a large group of people that are trying to do the right thing. So the question then becomes really for anybody who's a leader in an agency or has an ability to affect changes, <clears throat> is this, is this an isolated incident, right? Is this person, is this a good person who did a bad thing or a bad person that got through uh, jumped through the hoops and got hired anyway, and they're this bad person is now doing bad things, or is this systemic of a larger issue? And this is just the, this is just the guy that got caught, and this is going on elsewhere. I mean, then then you can talk about like Rampart and LAPD when that when that just one guy got got caught initially, but then holy cow, can of worms, you know, whole units doing it. Uh, so we have to be mindful that as much as I kind of joke about like animal sensitivity training there's a very real need to step back and look at it holistically and think too, like, is this a symptom of something bigger? And if it is, then it's on us to, to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You don't know how many of those types of trainings that I had to sit through in, uh, in 20 years, because there's always the reaction and I'm sure you've done just the same over your career uh, as, a, uh, as a sheriff deputy. Um, so inside of uh, maybe not just your organization, but some others too, like, again, talking to a lot of the people that you, uh, the other officers that you talk with, uh, as people, as you progress through the ranks inside of an organization, like, is, is there any sort of formal leadership training that, that comes with certain promotions or is it just kind of assumed that, Hey, this guy's been doing a good job for X amount of years and he's, he's ready and qualified to move up to bigger things. Well, Again, that's that varies by state and by agency, again, because of the different restrictions or not restrictions, the different uh, requirements in each. In California here, um, a lot of that training, ironically, happens after you get the spot. So you get promoted and then they send you to school to teach you how to be a leader or a sergeant. You know, for me, it was I got promoted to sergeant and then I it was like eight months later, I got sent to what's called sergeant school where it's two weeks of you know, basically being taught how to be a sergeant. And it's like all stuff I learned in the eight months before I went to sergeant school. Uh, that's pretty consistent in most states that there's some uh, element to that. What we really, really lack 
is the emerging leader development or the high potential leader development programs that you can take or that you can be a part of or that are mandated before you get promoted. You know, so for I know that Scottsdale, Arizona, for example, has, an, has a fantastic leadership development program that if you want to become a sergeant, a supervisor, you go through this program where you take classes, they teach you the ethos, they teach you the culture, they teach you their values, and they teach you like how to uh, do the job before you get into the job. One of the biggest challenges for any organization, I think this is true whether you're a, a, a cop or a plumber or an insurance salesman and you get promoted, you the, the, the systems we have in place, get you, you get promoted because you were good at the job you did, but that is not an indication that you're going to be good at the job you were given, right? And so we need to find ways to groom leaders and people who want to be leaders to know that they are capable of the job before we give it to them. And, you know, there's civil service testing and, and all that sort of stuff. But I would argue that none of that really shows someone to be a good leader. It shows them to be a good memorizer, or a good test taker, a good interviewer. But so many people fail when they get the job. They get promoted to a position because they fall back to knowing what they know well, which is the job they had. That's how you end up with micromanagers, right? And because... They don't know the job that they're supposed to do now as the leader. So they fall back to doing the job they used to do, which is unfortunately now yours. And now you're stuck under the thumb of this guy who's t telling you how to do everything because he doesn't know how to do his job. I imagine somebody out there uh, can commiserate with that experience. Um. <laughs> yeah, I've experienced that before. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, and I, I look back and I, I appreciate um some of the training that I had while I was in the Marine Corps, because I, I think that's, that's one thing that I think they do pretty well. Um, you know, there's leadership academies all along the way. And, and so they're, they're pretty good at ensuring that people attend those. And again, you've got a lot of good examples to follow too. And not everybody's great. Not every Marine is great. Um, but you do have a lot of good examples of people to, uh, to try to follow. Um, but there's always bad examples that you can learn from too. And, and the things that you don't want to do. Um, but yeah, I, I was always appreciative of uh, of some of those formal uh, schools that the Marine Corps offered. That, uh, oh, that really helped me out. But that's something else that I think, you know, people worry about this. What does law enforcement take from the military? But that is one of the things we could take the most that, that we don't currently take from them. You know, I'll give you back the AMRAMPs if I can take your leadership programs, you know, because you're right. Like OCS is a great example. Like, you want to be an officer? Cool. You got to go through this class first and show us that you have at least the basic tenets uh, of the leader before we give you the bars, you know? And it's like, what a, what a, a foreign concept to most places. <laughs> well, what's, what's also interesting, I'm glad you said that, you know, and I can remember in a couple of the different courses that I attended, we would have foreign military students as well from, you know, some of our partner military forces around the world. And that's great too, but I'd, I think it'd be cool if, you know, why can't an officer from LAPD or Orange County or somewhere, why can't they go to Camp Pendleton and attend? I mean, leadership's leadership and people are people. The job you're doing is almost irrelevant. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, leading people, uh, uh, establishing relationships and taking care of folks is the same no matter where you go. And so I think that'd be a great opportunity. I'm surprised that's never happened in the past. Yeah, it's, it's probably a great funny. example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's probably funding. I mean, and I get it. I mean, you can't, it's hard to replace an officer for, you know, four weeks or six weeks or whatever the timeline would be for the course. I, I completely get that. Oh, I so can, I could see that getting shut down because they're worried that the officer is going to twist an ankle on the four mile runs, you know, or something like that. And they'll shut it down for risk management issues, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, but, but it, wouldn't it be great? Um, so squad room. So I, I noticed on your website, it looks like you've got some things coming soon. What, what are you working on and where are you trying to, where do you want to go with, with, uh, with your squad room mission? So really right. What we were just talking about, you know, where you have a lot of, uh, excited, motivated, inspired first responders who don't know what they need to do next to get to where they want to go. So, and then you have agencies who are acknowledging we, this is an issue. You know, we need to develop our leaders. How do we do that? How do we move forward? And it's taking the, the knowledge I gained through all these interviews, 
you know, the hundreds of hours of interviews with these subject matter experts, uh, my own schooling and leadership, my own schools, my own training, my own background, my own mistakes, most importantly, and uh, creating programs that can bring an individual officer, again, who's probably going to go out and seek it on their own, but building a community for them where they can come as a safe place to ask questions, to learn what it takes to be a leader, regardless of rank, regardless of their station in life, regardless of their branch of service as a first responder or a second responder even, and uh, and really lead from where they're at, which again, I think means anybody can be a leader and everybody is a leader. Yeah, I, I, I think that's wonderful. And I, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I, it's, uh, um, I think it's great that, and it's unfortunate, honestly, that you've had to, but I think it's great what you're doing, that you've taken up this uh, cause that's important to you to try to help. And um, I wish that there was a greater system that was doing that. And maybe there is in some areas, but like you said, a lot of this is compartmentalized by regions and, and towns and things like that. But it would be great if there was... Um, uh, some larger institutions are really helping because I think what you're doing again, you're, you're trying to make a difference, I think in a, in a wonderful way in a, in a much needed way. And obviously you saw a need for some of these things that just weren't there and what some folks were dealing with uh, your peers were dealing with. And uh, it's great to see somebody take the initiative to try to develop something to just help. Thank you, man. It's, it's the weirdest hobby I could ever think of. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you have to have one, right? <laughs> Well, Gary, I appreciate it, buddy. And again, I, I, uh, I've enjoyed the podcast and uh, appreciate what you're doing. I thank you for your service, you and the guys out there. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again soon. I enjoyed the talk, Lonnie. Thank you very much. And thank you for what you're doing, too, just bringing the ideas of leadership concepts out, out there. You know, the more people that go out and talk like you do about, you know, how we each have an ability to, to lead from where we're at, the, we're, we're going to win it. It, I don't know what it is necessarily at this moment. You know, it changes day to day, day by day, but I know that, 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 that we can do it when we, when we have that mindset. Well, and, and real quick to, to finish up, I think that goes along with your, your Ted talk. You talked about second responders. It's other people that maybe it's not their primary thing in life, but they can still help in some way. And I think that was a good, um, a good lesson that you gave there. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right, Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Garrett today and, and hearing some of his story and what he's working on. Uh, we really appreci appreciate Garrett joining us today. Uh, you can find his podcast, The Squad Room, on, on basically all the platforms where you where you find podcasts. If you or someone you know could use some help improving their business through you know effective leadership, leadership training, mentorship, uh, coaching, check out our website at patriotleadershipadvisors.com. Uh, or on any of the social media platforms, basically, uh, just search for Patriot Leadership Advisors. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.